Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The issue we're analyzing today is women's suffrage. It's amazing that the United States was considered a democracy in the 1800s when the majority of the people did not have the right to vote. Of course, a lot of people could not vote because of the color of their skin. That is a long and tragic story, which needs to be told, but will not be part of this episode because that story alone is way too long. The focus today is the fact that half of the population was excluded from voting because of their gender. Think about that. If you were female, you could not vote in America. When people talk about the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which prevented exclusion from voting based upon a person's sex, it's usually worded that men finally gave women the right to vote. It's not true. Women fought hard for over 70 years to gain the right to vote. When the Constitution was written in the 1700s, the Founding Fathers did not want to deal with voting rights. It was too controversial an issue. So the drafters of the Constitution decided to pass the buck, let the states deal with it as to who could and could not vote. When America was in its infancy as an independent country, only white men who owned land could vote. The voting franchise was slowly expanded to include all white men. Yay, problem solved! Just kidding. Minorities and women were still excluded. So when did the movement towards female suffrage start? For two days in July 19 and 20, 1848, the first large women's rights conference occurred. It's usually called the Seneca Falls Convention because it occurred in Seneca Falls, New York. It was organized by several women, but the two leaders were Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Approximately 300 people attended, mostly women but some men. Elizabeth Cady Stanton started the two-day convention by announcing the goals and purposes of the conference. We are assembled to protest against a form of government existing without the consent of the governed, to declare our right to be free as man is free, to be represented in the government which we are taxed to support, to have such disgraceful laws as give man the power to chastise and imprison his wife, to take the wages which she earns, the property which she inherits, and, in case of separation, the children of her love. They drafted a set of 11 resolutions for equal rights for women. Ten of the resolutions were approved unanimously. Only the ninth resolution was approved with just the majority. And what was the ninth resolution? You guessed it, women's suffrage. On my website, you can find the 11 resolutions adopted by the Seneca Falls Convention. But to sum them up, the resolutions called for simple equality between men and women in the United States. In 1848, that was a radical idea. These women were pissed off, and with good reason. Let's put this into context about women's rights in America in the 1840s. The following are generalizations because there were differences in rights from state to state. But generally, this is the situation women were in in the 1840s. Unmarried women did have limited property rights. But it was extremely difficult to earn a living when they were restricted from occupations that required a license 
which were restricted to men. Married women essentially had no rights at all. If they were married, a husband had complete control over everything. She could not acquire any property when she was married. She could not sell or transfer property. So, what about the property that she owned before she got married? Yeah, you guessed it. She had no control over that property either. A wife could not keep or control her own wages. Any money she earned went to her husband. A wife could not file a lawsuit. She couldn't sign a contract. If she could somehow get divorced, the children would automatically go to the husband. And forget about the courts to protect any women's rights. It was not until the Civil Rights Act of 1957 that women were finally allowed to serve on federal juries. And that was only for federal courts. It wasn't until 1968 that the last state, Mississippi, permitted women to serve on juries in state courts. 1968! Incredible. The Seneca Falls Convention was the launch of the women's suffrage movement. During the 1850s, the women's rights movement was often tied with the abolitionist cause. After the Civil War, there was hope that all Americans would be granted the right to vote. That didn't happen. The 15th Amendment granted black men the right to vote. Black women, including those who had suffered all the hardships and degradation of slavery, just like the men, were left out of the franchise. All women were left out of the right to vote. Elizabeth Cady Stanton continued the fight for women's suffrage with another partner, Susan B. Anthony. It's sad that those two women are both essentially forgotten today. Most people only remember Susan B. Anthony as the person on that dollar coin which was minted from 1979 through 81 and then again for one year in 1999. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony had an uphill battle. They were trying to convince state legislatures, which were 100% male, to grant females the franchise. This was a tough sell. Most men did not want to share the right to vote. The first places which granted female suffrage occurred in the West. In 1869, the territory of Wyoming passed the first female suffrage law in the United States. When Wyoming became a state in 1890, it was the first state to grant women the right to vote. This was followed by Colorado in 1893, and in 1896, Utah and Idaho both granted women the franchise. It was no coincidence that these four states were the only states to grant women the right to vote before 1900. The populations of western states were predominantly male. Western territories and states very much wanted to attract female settlers. Obviously, there were a lot of female Native Americans there, but they did not count as far as the white males who were running the territorial and state governments were concerned. In short, they were trying to attract white women to move to the western U.S. Another way that they tried to entice women to move to the west was community property laws. As I outlined earlier, married women essentially had no property rights. Community property laws stated that during the marriage, both the husband and wife owned all property acquired during the marriage on a 50-50 basis. This was a much better deal for married women. That's why western states adopted community property laws to attract women from the eastern states. What about on a federal level? Were women getting anywhere on the right to vote under federal law? 
Susan B. Anthony tried a brilliant ploy to claim a constitutional right. She claimed the right to vote under the 14th Amendment. There were three amendments passed as a result of the Civil War. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 15th Amendment granted black men the right to vote. The 14th Amendment is more complex. It was passed in 1866, one year after the Civil War ended, and was intended to extend civil rights to blacks. Anthony voted in the presidential election of 1872 in her hometown of Rochester, New York. She was later arrested for being a woman who voted. She presented a great legal theory under Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which reads as follows. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Anthony argued that she was protected under the 14th Amendment since she was born in the United States and was a citizen. Therefore, she was granted all of the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, which included the right to vote. I practiced law for 31 years. I think Anthony presented a well-reasoned and very sound argument. But the judge did not think so. She was found guilty and fined $100. Anthony refused to pay and stated that she would rather go to jail than to pay any fine. She wanted to go to jail to bring more publicity to her case. That is devotion to a cause. But the judge understood what Anthony was doing and suspended the sentence. Anthony tried to appeal her case, but the Court of Appeal ruled that she could not do so because her sentence had been suspended. Her hopes of appealing all the way to the Supreme Court were dashed. Of course, she wouldn't have prevailed in the Supreme Court anyway. In 1875, the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Minor versus Happersett that women were citizens, but this did not give them the right to vote. A state could deny a woman the right to vote. That particular case arose from a woman in Missouri who tried to register to vote and was denied. Another problem faced by the women's suffrage movement is that women's rights groups were often tied to the drive for prohibition. The push to ban alcohol throughout the United States was not a moral crusade like most people think of it today. Most of the prohibition movement was made up of women because of the drastic effects it had on their home lives. As I outlined earlier, married women essentially had no rights. Even if they were working, they had no rights to their own wages. The husbands controlled everything. In the 1800s, there were not bars like we think of today where people go out, have a few drinks, maybe dance, maybe do karaoke, whatever. The saloons of the 1800s were male-only establishments where a significant portion of husbands would go and spend all of their paychecks before going home. Besides the financial ramifications, married women also had to deal with Drunken husbands who could physically beat their wives and children and suffer no legal consequences. A lot of the women involved in the suffrage campaign tried to distance themselves from the prohibition crusade. 
But since both movements were primarily driven by women, the press often linked them together. This resulted in the breweries and producers of hard liquor spending money to quash various state bills to give women the right to vote. And that spending often meant bribes to state legislators. These businessmen were worried that if women could vote, that prohibition might become a reality. Ironically, the 18th Amendment, which was the Prohibition Amendment, was passed before the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. The period from the 1890s up until 1920 was known as the Progressive Era. Political leaders like Teddy Roosevelt and the public in general pushed for social and political reforms. New women had taken over the fight for women's rights. This progressive era led to several states granting women's suffrage. In the relatively short period between 1910 and 1918, women gained the right to vote in 11 more states. Washington, California, Arizona, Kansas, Oregon, Montana, Nevada, New York, Michigan, Oklahoma, and South Dakota. You will notice there was only one eastern state, New York. There were a few other states which granted women the right to vote only for presidential elections, but not in other elections. Having the full right to vote in a total of 15 states was a nice start, but women wanted full voting rights in the other 33 states as well. Let's get back to the federal level. World War I started in 1914, but the U.S. did not join the war until April 1917. The war ended on November 11, 1918. Woodrow Wilson was the president during the war. He was elected in 1912 and then re-elected in 1916. President Wilson was against a constitutional amendment for women's suffrage. Wilson often said that it was a state's rights issue it's always an argument for some group to be deprived of their individual rights. But Woodrow Wilson eventually changed his position regarding a constitutional amendment on women's voting rights. It's not because he had a change of heart. It's because of pressure from women who portrayed Wilson as a hypocrite. During the Wilson presidency, there were two groups pushing for female suffrage. One was the National American Woman Suffrage Association, headed by Carrie Chapman Catt. That was the mainstream and larger group. But a group of women broke away from the National American Woman Suffrage Association and formed the National Woman's Party. This group was led by Alice Paul. Carrie Chapman Catt wrote many letters to President Wilson and received many in return. She also gave speeches and spoke with members of Congress. Alice Paul was a lot more radical. In short, she was a badass. Paul was born in 1885. During the progressive era in the U.S., she was very young. She was only 35 when the 19th Amendment was finally passed. In 1907, Alice Paul went to London. British women were in the midst of their own suffrage fight. Paul became an admirer of Christabel Pankhurst, the leader of the suffragettes. Okay. Let's deal with the names. Sometimes the name suffragettes, ending ets, and suffragists, ending ists, are used interchangeably. But they are not really. Usually, suffragettes was the name used for women seeking the franchise in Britain. In the U.S., the women called themselves suffragists. 
Originally, British and American women all used the term suffragists. But in 1906, a British newspaper, the Daily Mail, dubbed the women seeking the right to vote suffragettes. The paper meant it as a demeaning term because the suffix et, E-T-T-E, meant small or trivial, like a kitchenette or a novelette. But as kind of an F-U to that writer, the British women adopted the name and started referring to themselves as suffragettes. Right now, I would love to interject a portion of the song Suffragette City, but I do not want to pay some outrageous fee to whoever holds the rights to David Bowie's songs. So just play the song Suffragette City in your head as I go forward with this podcast. Getting back to the story of Alice Paul. During her time in Britain, she became heavily involved in the suffragettes movement. She admired their drastic ways of raising publicity for their cause. They held demonstrations, which often got them arrested. And while in jail, the suffragettes went on hunger strikes. The authorities did not wish to see women starve to death, but they also did not want to release them. So the prison authorities force-fed these women. It was a brutal procedure whereby a rubber tube was stuck down these women's throats or through their noses. The prison officials would forcibly pour a mixture of milk and eggs while the women were physically held down. Alice Paul underwent those force feedings when she was jailed in Britain. When she returned to the U.S. in 1910, she brought the tactics of the British suffragettes to America. Her first big project was to organize a parade in Washington, D.C. called the Women's Suffrage Procession. She scheduled the parade for March 3, 1913. Why'd she pick that date? It was the day before Woodrow Wilson was first inaugurated as president. Thousands of women marched down Pennsylvania Avenue along the same route that the inaugural parade would be held on the following day. To make sure that the purpose of this demonstration was clear to all onlookers, a float at the beginning of the parade read, We demand an amendment to the Constitution of the United States enfranchising the women of this country. Alice Paul and her associates chose their language carefully. They wanted to shock men watching the parade by stating that they demanded passage of the constitutional amendment. They weren't just politely asking for men to give them what they deserved. The crowd watching the parade was estimated at around 250,000. Unfortunately, the crowd became unruly, refusing to stay on the sidewalks. The crowd pressed in against the marchers. The police were unable, some said unwilling, to control the crowd of mostly men. The marchers were eventually surrounded by hostile men yelling insults and sexual propositions at them. And it wasn't just words. The marchers were spit upon as well as pushed and shoved by the crowd of angry men. Most of the female marchers held their ground for approximately an hour until the U.S. Army troops finally arrived to clear the streets and restore order so the procession could continue. In January 1917, Alice Paul organized pickets in front of the White House. They were known as the Silent Sentinels. They picketed in front of the White House six days a week, holding signs and banners demanding the right to vote. 
This might not seem like a radical idea to us, but this was the first time that people protested a president's policies by picketing in front of his house. They weren't doing anything illegal. In fact, the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914 legalized picketing. Trouble began in April 1917 when the U.S. entered World War I. The silent sentinels continued picketing in front of the White House. Some groups considered this unpatriotic in a time of war. The signs and banners had nothing to do with the war, well, except for occasionally referring to President Wilson as Kaiser Wilson. There were many women, as well as men, who came to support the silent sentinels' protests in front of the White House. But there were also plenty of hostile men who would line up around the women and yell insults at them and sometimes violently assault them. Starting in June 1917, the arrests came. Since they were not doing anything illegal, it was unclear what the criminal charges should be. The police and public officials decided to charge these women with disturbing the peace and obstructing traffic. And you would think that people could not actually be sent to jail for simply standing and holding a sign or banner on a public sidewalk. But you'd be wrong. The women were given monetary fines, which they refused to pay. So they were sent to jail. So many suffragists were arrested that they overloaded the District of Columbia jail. So the authorities sent them to the Oconquin Workhouse in Virginia, where conditions were much harsher. The women were ordered to strip naked and bathe in front of male guards. The food was inadequate as well as fairly inedible. Living conditions were horrendous, including filthy water and bedding. There were even instances of physical violence against the suffragists. Now let's stop to think for a minute about how insane this was. Women were peaceably protesting outside the White House, simply holding signs and banners demanding the right to vote. That's all they were doing. They were protected by the First Amendment as well as the Clayton Antitrust Act. Yet they were imprisoned and often physically abused. And what kind of sentences were they given for the horrendous crime of peaceful, silent protest outside of the White House? Well, at first the jail sentences were just a few days. But since this did not stop the protesters, the suffragists were given sentences of up to six months. In the case of Alice Paul, since she was the ringleader, she was given seven months. Six or seven months for holding non-threatening signs with phrases like, and these are actual examples of the banners held by the women, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? Mr. President, what will you do for women's suffrage? Some of the banners actually used quotes from Woodrow Wilson's own speeches, such as, We shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own governments. Or another Wilson quote, The time has come to conquer or submit. For us there can be but one choice. We have made it. I absolutely love the banners with exact quotes from the president being thrown back into his face. As horrible as the conditions were in the D.C. jail in Oconquin Workhouse, Alice Paul decided to raise the protest up a notch to get more publicity for the cause. 
In October 1917, while serving her seven-month jail sentence, Alice Paul declared a hunger strike. She knew what she was getting herself into because she had already done this when she was jailed in Britain. The prison authorities reacted the same way as the jailers in the UK. Paul was force-fed with a tube inserted through her nose where the jailers poured a mixture of milk and raw eggs. This was a very painful as well as humiliating procedure. News of Alice Paul's hunger strike, as well as the publicity of what was happening to all of the suffragists jailed in the nation's capital, finally became too much. In November 1917, all of the suffragists were released and Woodrow Wilson announced that there would be a bill in Congress for an amendment to the Constitution to grant the franchise to women. The horrible publicity of the maltreatment of these silent and nonviolent female protesters was only half the reason for Woodrow Wilson's change of position. The other half was because of the hypocritical stance he was taking regarding American women compared to the people of Europe. In 1917, Wilson was promoting democracy for Europe when the war ended. His positions were set out on January 8, 1918, when Wilson addressed a joint session of Congress. As part of that speech, he outlined his 14 points for peace. When the war ended 10 months later, a peace conference was scheduled for Paris. Wilson was personally going to this peace conference. People around the world were cheering him as the champion of democracy based upon his famous 14 points. A core basis of the 14 points and Wilson's worldview was self-determination. In an address to Congress on February 11, 1918, Wilson stated, National aspirations must be respected. Peoples may now be dominated and governed only by their own consent. Self-determination is not a mere phrase. It is an imperative principle of actions which statesmen will henceforth ignore at their peril. Now, obviously, Wilson meant the peoples of Europe. He was thinking of the breakup of the German and the Austro-Hungarian empires. As a result, several new countries would be created after World War I. President Wilson was not thinking about self-determination in his own country. But women were quick to point out that half of all U.S. citizens, the female half, were unable to exercise self-determination because they could not vote. The time finally seemed at hand for the passage of a constitutional amendment that was commonly referred to as the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. In 1878, a member of Congress first submitted a proposal for a constitutional amendment granting women the right to vote. Although it was discussed in Congress from time to time, it was never taken seriously. But by 1918, things had changed. As I pointed out earlier, New York passed an amendment to the state constitution granting women's suffrage in 1917. This was incredibly significant because at that time, New York was by far the largest state by population. This meant that they had the most seats in the House of Representatives. In November 1916, another big event occurred. Jeanette Rankin became the first woman elected to Congress. She was elected to the House from the state of Montana. By 1918, the times were changing. Even Woodrow Wilson came out publicly in favor of the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. In September 1918, 
He addressed Congress in support of such a constitutional amendment. It's not easy to amend the U.S. Constitution. The two processes for amending the Constitution are found in Article 5. One way is by a constitutional convention called by two-thirds of the state legislatures. That has never been done. All 27 of the amendments to the Constitution have been passed by the other procedure listed in Article 5. An amendment may be proposed by Congress if two-thirds majority vote in both the House and the Senate propose an amendment in a joint resolution. Once Congress approves the proposed amendment, it is submitted to the states for ratification. Three-fourths of the states must ratify the proposed amendment for it to become a part of the U.S. Constitution. On June 4, 1919, the two houses of Congress, by joint resolution, approved the woman's suffrage amendment. Now it was under the states for ratification. As I told you, Article 5 of the Constitution requires three-fourths of the states to ratify a proposed amendment. In 1919, there were 48 states. That means that 36 states had to ratify the amendment. By the summer of 1920, 35 states had ratified the proposed amendment. The amendment needed to be ratified by one more state. In August 1920, Tennessee would vote on the proposed amendment. Polling of the state legislators in Nashville showed that the amendment would lose by two votes. Harry Byrne was a 24-year-old Tennessee legislator who had indicated that he would vote against ratification. But by the day of the vote, August 18, 1920, Harry Byrne had received a letter from his mother telling him to be a good boy and vote in favor of the suffrage amendment. If this was a movie, you would say that this was too corny, but this was true. So Harry Byrne voted in favor. Only one more vote was necessary. Another state legislator named Banks Turner who everybody thought would vote no, changed his mind and voted yes. By the slimmest of margins, Tennessee ratified the amendment. The 19th Amendment was now part of the U.S. Constitution. Women throughout the United States had the legal right to vote. Finally. Although the amendment had been ratified by the 36 states required and had already become part of the Constitution, Connecticut became the 37th state to ratify the amendment in September 1920. The following year, Vermont ratified the 19th Amendment, and Delaware ratified it in March of 1923. Here is the full text of that amendment. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. It is so short and so powerful. Since it was now part of the Constitution, it did not matter if a particular state ratified the 19th Amendment or not. But symbolically, certain states refused to ratify the amendment until decades later. In 1941, just before the U.S. entered World War II, Maryland finally ratified the amendment. In 1952, Virginia ratified the amendment. The following year, in 1953, Alabama did so. In 1969, South Carolina and Florida finally ratified the 19th Amendment. Georgia and Louisiana finally did so in 1970, 
a full 50 years after the 19th Amendment became part of the Constitution. The next year, 1971, North Carolina ratified the 19th Amendment. And if I told you one state did not ratify the 19th Amendment until 1984, yes, 1984, could you guess which state that was? If you guessed Mississippi, you are a winner. The late ratification of the 19th Amendment by those southern states was legally irrelevant, but significant symbolically. On one hand, it demonstrated a refusal to acknowledge the equality of women, but mostly it confirmed the hostility to voting rights for blacks. Even though the 19th Amendment did not apply to race, only to gender, the Southerners were very worried about any voting rights being enforced. So how did the U.S. stack up against other democracies of the world? I told you earlier that the suffragettes in the U.K. had been fighting around the same time as the American suffragists. The Equal Franchise Act of 1928 gave British women over 21 the same voting rights as men. In France, women did not get the vote until a law passed in 1944, but did not actually get to vote until April of 1945. You think of Switzerland as being kind of progressive, right? Not on this issue. Women did not get the right to vote on a national level until 1971. You heard right, 1971. Damn, some of us were in middle school at that time. On the bright side, Canada was a little better than their southern neighbors. Women in Canada obtained the right to vote on a federal level in 1918. How about Australia? The vote for women in federal elections came in 1902. Very good. But the Aussies weren't the first country to grant the franchise to women. That honor goes to New Zealand. In 1893, New Zealand became the first country where women had the right to vote in national elections. Good job, Kiwis. So this is a happy ending. American women have had the right to vote for over 100 years and now have full equality with men throughout the United States. What's that? Oh, sorry, my wife is talking to me. Oh, she's pointing out to me that women have not yet achieved equality with men in the United States. Okay, I guess that's true, and that would have to be the subject of another episode. Well, that's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Ratings and likes greatly help with the algorithms that determine the placement of podcasts on particular apps. So if you are listening on an app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, which allow for ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. Word of mouth is the best way to increase my audience, so please tell your friends, relatives, and coworkers. Check out my website, historyanalyze.com. You'll find links to my podcast episodes, as well as goodies for all the history geeks out there like This Day in History, book recommendations, historical sound bites, and links to supporting historical evidence. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.